podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stretty Cast. This week we have another appearance from someone who had to drag away from RuPaul's Drag Race because he wasn't on last week, so I had to push him out to get on this week. How are you, Mike? I'm good, yeah. Um, I'm not wearing my drag outfit today, unfortunately. That would be for Patreon subscribers only. That's it. So this podcast available as per usual on Spotify, iTunes and other podcast platforms. But if you want to see the video of it, subscribe to our Patreon just to support the blog at a small cost. Um, it's patreon.com forward slash trading news. So Mike, to jump into our chat today, um, the Thursday podcast, where there's a lot of reports about Project Restart and the Premier League. Every day there's a different report, whether it's bizarre or not, about football returning. Um how are you going about getting your daily kind of scoop of news on the Premier League restart? Are you, are you just giving up? Are you giving up till the day comes that the UK government has to make a final decision? I have kind of given up. I, I gave up when they started coming up with these ridiculous notions of reducing um, the time of a game to, what, 40-minute halves or whatever it was. Um, all these ludicrous suggestions that they've been coming up with. I, I, I find it... Not only is it idiotic to consider um, restarting any football before the autumn, um, I find it idiotic. I find it really incredibly insensitive, especially in the situation this 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 country's in right now. You know, was it the sportsman who came out and saying, "Oh, I think it'll do the country's mood a world of good to have the football back"? No one, Foreign no one cares. Dominic Rab claimed it would lift the nation. Dominic Raab, I mean, uh, I compared on my own Twitter account Dominic Raab to be like the captain of the University Rugby Union team at Lancaster University. These are the morons who used to shit in people's living rooms and dye their hair peroxide blonde at the end of every year because they thought it was a laugh. Um, I have a little truck with Dominic Raab. He's a complete idiot who, uh, like many people in the current cabinet, is promoted way above their ability or their intelligence. Um, it, no one, no one cares. No one cares. Talk about lifting the mood of the nation. What will lift the mood of a nation is the government presenting a clear, decisive, and effective strategy that is going to get us through this, which they have not done. They uh, only they talked about this hundred thousand testing capacity, which they only managed to hit one day, which was funnily enough the last deadline day that they had to hit that testing. Mm of 100,000 tests a day. They have since fallen back by between 15 and 25,000 tests now that are not being used. And then um, after uh, our dear Prime Minister, um, who the press have been fawning over because he had a, because he's had a son, um, forgetting that he already has six previous children, uh, one of which he refused to actually... Um, Take uh, take responsibility of having genetic parentage of until he was forced to take a paternity test. Um, he uh, then, after being skewered by the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, who once again um, basically ripped apart yet another member of the government in Prime Minister's questions, um, then suddenly promised that we were going to have two hundred thousand tests a day by the end of this month. Um, to which it, it didn't. It, seemed, it didn't seem to get noticed by many, but the health secretary, Matt Hancock, dropped his head and then proceeded to shake it from side to side. Watch your tone, look- Mike. Yeah, oh yeah, watch my tone, yeah. yeah. Uh, with the look of a man who hadn't been told that his leader and his prime minister was going to say this, 
and in fact had the look of a man who he clearly spotted that Boris had made this figure up on the spot after being pressured and couldn't come up with any answers. It's very clear why the Premier League wants to do this is because they want money. And can, because can, can I just say on that, because you mentioned some of the outrageous promises the government mm. are making now after not fulfilling the previous promises they made over testing. The Premier League has issued new protocols according to the Telegraph, which they came in a report on Wednesday night. Things such as non-spitting allowed, no spitting allowed, no swapping shirts. Look, th- that's fine, but I don't know how you can totally stop players from spitting, but there's a really strange one here about no celebrations. Um, how can you have... Look, you're taking a lot out of football already by having to play behind closed doors. I've had my own opinions on if football can't be played for, 90, for, for 45 minutes per half, if, if fans can't attend games, there's a reason for that. There's a reason it's not safe. Um, and the Premier League, to me, seems that they're pushing all these outrageous ideas out just to bend the government's arm, knowing how idiotic they've been and knowing how they'll probably say yes. And there's calls for the Premier League to follow the Bundesliga, who are coming back in a, in a week or two. Um, again, every country in this pandemic is different. Every country has, has tried to control the pandemic differently. And I don't think you, look, you should be looking at Germany. A total different country, different league. The Premier League is the biggest domestic football league in the world. It needs to make the right decision. And I, and I worry that the people that, that are involved in these talks, football suits, they're not experts. They're not experts in this field. And the doctors, for instance, the doctors have raised questions on the protocols, but they won't be listened to until... The the UK government reveals their guidelines on Sunday, so which is they're rushing to come to a decision, but they can't they, they can't make a decision until these questions are answered. It, it just seems nuts. No, I absolutely agree. Um, it's also it's just morally wrong. I mean, I disagree with the with the Bundesliga's um, uh, suggestion to come back in a week or so. I, I wonder if you ask the players what they would feel about that. I, I imagine are they, are they those... being consulted here? They have I don't think. Be. I don't think. I don't think they are. I don't think the players are being consulted at all. It's very clear when the issue of wage cuts and wage deferrals came up that the players were not consulted on that. And I thought it was a disgrace when you had government ministers and some people calling out players to take uh, wage deferrals. Um, and it was interesting, the only person who actually talked any sense I saw in the media about this was uh, Piers Morgan, who that you know who thinks it's entirely up to the players whether they should take um, wage cuts and wage deferrals or not. The real problem I have with this, football is a contact sport. You can talk about spit, it's a contact spectator sport. You could talk about spitting and stuff all you like, but the fact is you're going to have physical contact. People running around, so they're going to be sweating. But you, you're going to ban players from sweating now? You're going to make them all like Prince Andrew? Is that what you're going to do? Uh, this is just absolutely ludicrous. And football without fans is pointless. Not only will people not watch it, and it won't be worth the TV company's time to air it, um, if you look at Sky and BT, you look at the viewing figures that they're having for their football, it's already poor. It, just This is just within the UK. The viewing figures are not good for live football in this country because um, it's too expensive and there's too much of it. Too, and, many, too many plans. you got BT Sport, you got Amazon yeah. Prime, you got Sky Sports. And it's not only expensive, Mike, it's, 
it's a fucking nuisance to sign up to all three. And yeah. then when it comes to the end of the season, when people, a lot of people, end their subscriptions, you're on the fucking phone for an hour at a time, listening to absolute bollocks, and it's just an inconvenience. So do you know what? We, we said it on the blog the other day about this. Primarily, don't want people talking about IPTV services. I use one, and I recommend it. Because I watch a lot of sport, and to have three subscriptions, it's that, that's too costly. Way too costly. Yes, it, it is. Um, but once again, this goes into my main argument that it's entirely immoral for the Premier League to even be considered in starting again. It's uh, endangering the safety of the players. It's only going to take one person. If you go on the World Health Organization's website, they give very useful information as to why they have these guidelines. There's like diagrams of radiuses of when one person is infected, if they're in a fairly crowded area, how many people close by that they can infect a football match, whether it's behind closed doors or not, you've got 22 people out there. One infected player could spread that virus to six or seven players. They could spread it to coaching staff. We saw this at Arsenal. We saw it at Chelsea. This is why they got shut down in the first place. The Premier League would never have shut this season down had um, Arteta not tested positive for that virus. I'm absolutely convinced they would never have shut down. Um, I just... It's, it's immoral, but when you look at who the Premier League have very recently allowed to buy one of the clubs that is participant in the competition, yeah. let's be honest, the Premier League doesn't give two shits about morality, does it? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And even in that, the games behind locked doors also, the, you will have 300 or so people in the stadium for those matches. Um, and as you mentioned, the, the, the infection rate or how, how close you need to be to people doesn't matter how big a football stadium is, it's a contact sport. People are going to be brushing off one another. Um, but, the, but the whole thing, that one point that, that triggered me was the celebration. You're, you're not allowed to celebrate. So basically, they're expecting footballers to be robots, to show no emotion. It's tough enough to play behind closed doors when it's like a training match environment when there's no fans singing and there's no oohs and ahs. But also, you're not allowed to celebrate. So put, but to put it into pers- pers- some perspective, Liverpool are about to win their first league title in 30 years. It's already a kick in the bollocks that their fans won't be able to, to celebrate that moment with them. Um, as far as they can see, I'm loving every minute of it. But So they get that goal against whoever it is to win the league. Game's about to end. Are you telling me Van Dijk, Mohamed Salah, if they're allowed to play a, fo- a football match, they'd happily get sent off if it means celebrating it and... How about Trent Alexander-Arnold, who is Liverpool through and through, lad came through the academy, yeah. from the local area. I know, you know, we could say, if we're, if we're being partisan and tribalism, you know, we're loving every second of this. But actually, I do have genuinely quite a lot of sympathy for uh, the position that, um, uh, you know, listen, I, I wouldn't like to be in a position that Liverpool fans are yeah. in. If we were about to win the league title this season and then suddenly it was on the verge of being cancelled, um, I, I, I wouldn't be happy about it but I also okay but I'm, I I'm, I'm put you ask, you most Liverpool fans Liverpool fans that I know do not want this season restarted prematurely yeah. either they would rather it was cancelled than restarted prematurely me personally I think the only way fair way out of this is if you write off next season when you finally restart things again you restart this season I think that is the only really viable solution because even if you have next season that's going to be in a highly compressed space of time. Do we really trust that the authorities are going to try and um, condense the amount of uh, 
you know, oh, we'll get rid of this competition or reduce the amount of games that you play. And I, I don't think that at all. So you're just increasing the risk of players getting injured. And if you're going to truncate the end of this season, you're also re- reduce, You're also increasing the risk of players getting injured, playing too many games in a short space of time. So not only are you endangering their health in terms of them getting this virus, not only does it just basically kill any notion of football as a spectator sport, which I think will not only kill the enthusiasm of anyone wanting to watch at home, I think it's going to reduce the enthusiasm of the players and it removes the integrity of the competition. It's... Uh, also, putting the players' safety at risk in terms of they, they they could get some serious muscle injuries out of this. It's ridiculous, and I just think it really speaks a lot about the people running the game that they're even having this conversation, mm-hmm. considering people are dying by their tens of thousands right now. You can't even go to the pub to watch a football match, which is the secondary thing that you would do if you can't go to the ground where you can watch it in a communal environment. What's the point? It's just ridiculous. I, if they restarted it, I mean, to be honest, I'm not going to watch. I, I really, I'm not going to bother watching football if it's played behind closed doors. Yeah, no, we've seen that with the game against Lask in the Europa League before football was suspended. And a lot of the, the comments passed on, on Twitter during the game was about the lack of atmosphere and how strange and how weird it is. Yeah, but, Andy Mitten mentioned that as well. Yeah, it was. It was, it was totally different. But I have to ask you, before we move on, because you've kind of touched on it and you mentioned your, your 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 slight dose of sympathy for Liverpool at the moment and their fans. But if you had to pick one club to be in the situation that they find themselves in, be honest. Ah, no, but I can top that, you see, because Leeds United are on the verge of being promoted this season. <laughs> so you also get the double whammy of Liverpool not winning the league and Leeds not getting promoted um, as well, which is sort of like the double whammy. As much as I'd love to have Bielsa in the Premier League, because I absolutely love him, and I think... He deserves a crack at a couple of seasons in the league, but so it's it's a double, it's a double, you know, it's it's a two for one for me. Yeah, yeah, it'd be interesting to see what they do. But sticking on the whole COVID nineteen lockdown um, topic, Marcus Rojo's inability to follow the rules has popped up in the in the headlines. Um, if you if you haven't heard much about it this week, I'd be surprised. But Rojo was pictured smoking and playing cards with his friends back in Argentina, where he's currently on loan. Uh, how fucking stupid is he? Uh, incredibly stupid. Um, I remember I had a period at one point, I think it was when um, Mourinho was in charge, where I exclusively referred to Rojo by his full title of that idiot, Marcus Rojo. And that was what I always referred to him as for his repeated, apparently his repeated attempts to get red carded during football matches. Um he is an idiot. It shouldn't be of a surprise to anyone that he's an idiot. He was an idiot when he signed for the club and he had an assault char- a charge or an afraid charge back in Argentina hanging over his head for getting in a fight with a neighbour. Which um, he bottled that said neighbour, apparently. Yeah. I, I, for me, that should have... I, that, that baffled me so we still signed him after that. I, I think that should have been a line in the sand just to say, and I know you can't control everything a player does off the pitch, but that's a really quite a serious thing to be getting entangled with. And this, again, is a very, very serious thing to be getting entangled with in terms of, you know, we have a global pandemic right now. This is the most deadly disease to circulate the globe in a century. Mm-hmm. And he's making a light of it. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, I think, I'm sure I there's plenty that... of people are, but if you are, if you've been put under strict instructions by your employers whether it's your temporary employers in Estudiantes La Plata, who I think 
as the club yeah. he's on loan at right now in Argentina, or his overall employees in Manchester United, and you break that. I mean, I don't know if that is considered actually a breach of your contract. I'd imagine it should be. The only the only problem is, I'm, I'd imagine like the the problem they're having with contracts now, and which they're having with paying players, is this kind of situation has never really happened before. So it has it hasn't it probably not in contracts, but but the whole the whole thing which, which I think pisses people off is this pandemic is hurting everyone, not just ordinary people like me and you, but but wealthy people as well. And 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 for the most part, people are following guidelines. There's people that can't see the, their parents anymore, their children because they're working on the front line. And I think then it's a massive slap in the face, especially in this case because we've seen Jack Grealish. Um, get into a bit of bother drink driving or whatever causing a crash during the lockdown he got a slap in the wrist for that but maybe a month on or so Rojo is aware of the backlash this can, can bring a footballer and doesn't give a shit he's just sm- sm- smoking there with his mates playing cards making making fun of the situation making fun of this making yeah he is making fun of the situation because there's lots of people that can't that miss those miss those aspects of life and we just have to sit, sit tight and, and fucking write it out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I live in Battersea, London. Uh, none of my family live down in London. They live, they're, almost all of them are up in Manchester or they live in Wales. I can't get to either of those places to see my family. And I was actually planning on going up there uh, early on last month because it was my mum's birthday last month. I didn't get to go back home for my mum's birthday. I didn't get to see her. It's highly probable my uh, little brother's birthday comes up uh, in a couple of months, it's highly probable I'm not going to be able to get to go and see him in that time because, let's be honest, I think there's going to be restrictions on travel for for people, anything other than, um, than you know, essential journeys. I think there's going to be restrictions on travel probably until at least the end of the year. I think that is highly probable. So... Um, yeah, for him to be doing this, Moisey Keane is another one who, his was even worse. I mean, he hosted a party, uh, details of that party. I'm not going to get into the whole moral thing of his. And Kyle Walker was another one as well, who, by all accounts, um, hosted a, uh, is it one of those parties? I, I couldn't get, I was trying to get the grass with Kyle Walker's party. It was one of those where they'd hired people to come around. It was one of those everyone puts the keys in a bowl. Anyway. Um, equally stupid um, thing that he did. I, I just don't understand with some of these. I don't understand with, with some of these guys. But they, I mean, it's not just footballers that have been idiots. I mean, about to see Park near me. There's, there's an outdoor gym, and then when this first started, about four days after this first started, then they put all tape around the thing and put notices up to say, look, this gym is closed, and then people were still going in. So they put this big fence around it so you couldn't get in. And then the other day I saw like um, there was these like meatheads in there who had somehow still gone in um, about five or ten of them. And I'm like, well, clearly you guys don't all live together unless you're filming like a uh, unless you're filming something for Pornhub. I, I don't think you're all I don't think you all live together. So but it's like if you're in a. I'm not expecting you to be a paragon of moral virtue if you're a footballer. It's not, it's not your job to do that. But for goodness sake, you'd think in something like this, you'd at least be smart enough not to get caught being this stupid. I just wanted to ask you as well, because you're someone that does go to the gym. Um, I was thinking about this and how businesses are going to 
return after the whole pandemic finishes. And there's going to have to be different measures brought in with, with social distancing and stuff. But in a gym, especially, which in my town, in the past three years, gyms have opened up oh, every corner of the town. You know, they're everywhere, everywhere. So many businesses. How are they going to continue? Because you have people literally, you know, it's, it's impossible to clean weights after everybody's using you know, the sweat's going to be dripping. People are going to be using the same chalk, the same equipment. That's one business I reckon is going to be in trouble. Yeah, so I go to a, what is kind of a more specialist, like weightlifting, CrossFitters gym, um, where it's all like you are, you're always instructed and, and stuff like that. Um, uh, so I think it was about... When Boris announced the stay-at-home orders and all non-essential businesses closed... That place uh, stayed open right up until then. And to be honest, at the time, even though I was sort of, I was kind of a little bit conflicted about it, I still went because it was a way that I could get out of the house, I could expend some physical energy. I, I think I'd had that week blocked off work anyway, so it was a nice place to go. They had already at that point enacted measures such as they got rid of all the communal chalk because you had to bring your own chalk. Um, and they reduced the class sizes as well for the classes and um, so basically how that gym works you uh pay a membership a month and you go to classes and you get your program done for you um uh so you had that um everyone it was very clear that everyone had to wipe down all the equipment after they used it you should do that anyway in a gym by the way um you shouldn't have to do that in a pandemic it's a basic course of hygiene that you, you don't want to put your head on a bench that someone has sweated all over i have to add that there was a poll did on irish radio on today fm a good few months ago i remember being shocked by it they mentioned on one of the breakfast shows and they asked they did a poll on people who wash in their gym gear and there was a large percentage of people that say they don't wash their gym gear at all it's just that that's the gear they throw into the bag and they wear it every day sweating their bits into it and they don't wash it. That is fucking gross. I'll be honest. Um, in How often of... do you wash your gear, Mike? <laughs> in terms of the clothes, they get washed regularly. But if I'm talking the stuff like the knee sleeves or the wrist wraps, they probably don't get as washed as much as they should do. Um, one of the, actually, one of the girls who does weightlifting in my class, and I'm not going to name her name because um, she's been shamed about this on the communal WhatsApp group before, and we've shamed her in classes. She's one of the worst I've come across for not washing her stuff like her knee sleeves. So one time when I was doing squats with her, I turned around and I said, hey. and I could smell something. I went, oh, they say, you say your knee sleeves that I can smell. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. Oh, Jesus. Uh, yeah, so I know it's, um, it's bad. <laughs> I, I think when people think of their gym gear, they're talking about their trainers and anything like knee sleeves and belts and wrist wraps. I can't believe they wouldn't not wash their gym clothes. Jock straps. Just... <laughs> so always keep a clean jock strap, all right? <laughs> Just uh, another person in in the spotlight, not football related, is Neil Ferguson, um, who's had to resign from his role in in, in the government. Um, talk to me about that because when I when I mentioned it before in the podcast, Mike, you kind of had a different outlook than say the anger we displayed about Rojo, and it is a different situation totally. Um, what happened and why did he resign? So he was one of the chief advisors to the government. He was one of the people that helped devise the very public stay-at-home strategy for what good that did us. I mean, he had to resign. I mean, there was no question he had to resign. Listen, you know, he broke... 
the own advice that he devised on social distancing. He's a professor. He was one of the main advisors. He was on, I think, Sage, which was the uh, the panel that that was uh, basically came up with all the advice to give to the public and all the messages to give to the public. So he he had he had to go uh, because of that. Basically, what happened was he was in a relationship with a woman who was married. I don't know the full details of that relationship because he himself is not in a relationship. So, and and we don't know whether the person he was seeing was already in some sort of legal separation with the person that they were married. They may have already been separated. The whole whole thing is this, I don't think that belongs to the media. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Uh, It doesn't at all. And it's convenient. The newspaper that broke that story was the Daily Telegraph who have been the chief propagandist for this government on this uh, during this whole crisis, when it's become clear within the last two weeks that the government's strategy of dealing with this virus has not only been wrong, it's been disastrously wrong. We now have the second highest death toll in the world. In terms of recorded death toll, there is a suspicion that countries such as Iran, for instance, are uh, have an inordinately high death toll and they're just not telling us and they may be conceding the numbers. See, that, that's the two parallels here of media reporting. We're, we're stating that the the inside details of a relationship um, Ferguson had, and mm. then, which I don't think really belongs to the story in the first place. If you broke if you broke the lockdown rules, okay, that's news. Um, mm. The specific details of that relationship, considering he wasn't in a marriage or a relationship, really don't need airing. Um, but then you have Iran potentially under reporting case of COVID-19. And also That's... Russia as well is another country that is absolutely reporting cases. Three doctors recently in Russia who have essentially blown the whistle on maybe some of the practices that have been going on have, and uh, this is only going to be obviously seen by um, the people that are watching the video, have been have uh, fallen from windows. That's absolutely true. Yeah. That's what the reports of Associated Press say. <laughs> Um, all fallen from windows, incredible. I mean, these are very careless doctors um, going on here. But it's very clear. Um, I think we're getting kind of, into uh, Mohammed bin Salman territory there in terms of deflecting the truth. I mean, it's, it's Vladimir Putin. I almost hesitate to say it on this podcast in case I end up falling from a window. I live in London, so, you know, I'm <laughs> well within reach of Mr. Putin uh, by all accounts. But... Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really concerning. This is what is known as a dead cat strategy. Um, I think that term may have actually been devised by Boris Johnson about 10 years ago in a column he was writing for the Daily Telegraph, funnily enough. Uh, a column he used to... I don't know if he still writes this column for the Telegraph, but he, he did it for many, many years. He wrote it when he was mayor of London. He, he basically wrote a, a, a once-weekly column for the Daily Telegraph, which he was paid £100,000 a year for. He refers to that hundred grand a year as chicken feed. But he referred to this and basically, if you want to distract someone, you throw it. If something's going on, if there's an argument, you just throw a dead cat onto the table. Where's this? You Does the Telegraph need a new columnist for 100,000 a fucking year? <laughs> to write any old shit, yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, so it's very clear. It's one thing that if they said, look, uh, Professor Neil Ferguson has, has broken social distancing advice and has had to resign from his job. That in itself is news. But I think within maybe half a day, once it announced I've resigned, everyone would have forgotten about that. But it's very clear, the whole salacious details of why that's, of how that social distance had been broken had been reported for the purposes of distracting the fact that 
uh, UK's recorded death figures have gone up again because of the um, we started including uh, death of uh, COVID nineteen deaths in care homes, which we hadn't been recording. Mm. And when the reporting lag catches up at the end of the week. Um, in fact, we'll catch up this weekend, which is around the time that the government is expected to uh, announce a relaxing on certain social distancing measures. Um, it's going to show another spike in cases, and the government does not want that spike in cases to be on people's, on everybody's minds at a time where they want to relax social distancing measures and make and, out. And there's also talk of the virus. Yeah, they, they don't want these distractions. So they they don't want those things to get in the way of that. So they'll try and distract us with anything that we can. And um, I mean, I, I've not really kept up with much of the reporting from say, like the BBC and, and stuff like that. It's clear some media outlets haven't fallen for this, but um, there is a habit among some journalists, I'm not going to name names in certain newspapers, obviously I'm in the Telegraph, but there's others, quite prominent journalists. And there's um, the writer and journalist Peter Olborn, uh, who used to write for the Telegraph before he resigned a few years ago, um, he mentioned that there's become a habit under the uh, over the last year or so of what he calls client journalism, where very prominent journalists are just repeating whatever they're given by number 10, basically, as a way to sort of keep in the know. And they I think tend there's to a bit of that going on with Manchester United, too. Well, when we consider who's running public relations for the club now, I'm absolutely certain that that's the case. Um <laughs> But it's 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 genuinely quite concerning, and um, yeah, I, I, I worry that against this backdrop, the Premier League's going to restart. You're going to get this relaxed and social distancing measures, and it's going to lead to a second spike um, in cases that could then overwhelm the health health health, you know, uh, the national the national health service. And considering when you have certainly with the Premier League and uh, the Championship. Now, those clubs and the, the players in those two leagues are in, uh, and the players are in a position where they can weather this out financially. Uh, the clubs further down the pyramid, there is some genuine concern about the government needs to be helping out. But those those top two leagues, the players and the clubs have the, or they certainly should have the financial ability to be able to weather this out. Um, and... I think it is irresponsible and immoral of them to then be taking resources from the NHS away and taking testing capacity away that could be spared for key workers. I'm going to say key workers. I'm not just talking about healthcare workers. I'm talking about people who work in supermarkets and other essential industries that have stayed open during this crisis. That's who the testing capacity needs to be open for. And people who are uh, whose own health is uh, compromised anyway and would be... Um, you know, highly susceptible to, to being in serious trouble if they caught this virus. I know yourself, Dale, you are someone that would be in that kind of immunocompromised category. It's highly irresponsible and, and very, very unfair. Absolutely. And the biggest topic today for the podcast to step away from, from COVID-19, that is something that you brought up um, this week you wanted to talk about, was United Trinity, George Best, Dennis Law and Sir Bobby Charlton. Um, we're just going to spend the remainder of the podcast discussing I suppose their big print on Manchester United's history, which um, which started in January 1964 when they first played together as a trio against West Brom. Um, in that season, United would finish runners up to to Liverpool, 
Um, but but this was a time in which United didn't really follow up their achievements due to post Munich. Um, Serap Bosby had to build the team again from the the wreckage in the Munich runway, and and rebuild. And part of that rebuild included three of these players. Um, one of which was was in the crash, Robbie Charlton, and of course the players to come along, George Best and Dennis Law. Um, a great topic suggestion, Mike. What have you come up with in terms of statistics and stuff? Well, um, if you look at the um, top goal scorers in Manchester United history, um, <laughs> the top five, um, well, uh, so obviously Wayne Rooney is the top goal scorer in United history, Charlton is second, Law is third, um, and Law's scoring rate is quite astonishing. I think it worked out as... Um, he scored over a goal. Uh, it was more than a goal every two games. I mean, he was really quite incredible statistics. His stats were 237 goals in 404 games. In 64, is, he scored 46 goals across our competitions. He won the Ballon Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's, a club, that's a club record that still stands today in a single season. No one's broken that. I think the closest ones we've had were, I think, Ruben Van Nistelrooy and Cristiano Ronaldo are closest to breaking yeah. that. I think Ronaldo 0203 had about 40 as well. But it's, I mean, 46 goals in the season. And really, you have to say, this era in the 1960s in English football, I would argue, is the best in uh, probably English football history in terms of domestic competition. The strongest that we've ever seen. There was eight different champions between 1960 and 1970. You look at the teams that were around in that decade... Manchester United had a great team then. Obviously, it was the second great Samat Busby team. You had um, the beginning of the decade. Burnley had a very good side. Wolverhampton United had a very good side. Tottenham Hotspur, the first English team to win the league and FA Cup double were around then. And this was before they added Jimmy Greaves to their team, who is the most prolific, I think the most prolific English centre-forward in history. Well, Alex definitely um, told us he was the best striker he ever played against. He was astonishing. If you go and find clips of Greaves, and actually him and Law are in the same kind of mould, and, and they were so instinctive and so clever. Um, he was incredible. I think Jimmy Greaves finished top scorer four or five times. It won the Golden Boot four or five times that decade. He was incredible. Would have played in the World Cup final were he not, were he not for the fact that he was injured. You know, Jeff Hurst would never have played. It would have been Jimmy Greaves. Liverpool's first great team under Bill Shankly came around then. And as you mentioned, they won the league in 1964. That was the first great team that Bill Shankly built. I think you had people like Ian St. John in the team. They were a really good team. And, you know, Dennis Law very nearly ended up going to Liverpool when Shankly left Huddersfield. He was the first player that he wanted to take with him when he left Huddersfield. And he left Huddersfield because Huddersfield were determined to keep selling their best players rather than trying to keep them. And that was where Shankly fell out with him and he went to Liverpool because they basically offered him a free hand to restructure the club as they saw fit. And Liverpool at that point weren't really doing that much. I think they won one league title since the the end of the, the Second World War, which was the first league title after the war. The, the club was in a state of disrepair. He wanted to take Danny Law with him. Liverpool just didn't have the money at the time because of where else the money had to be spent. Um, in fact, Matt Busby had also tried to sign Dennis Law when he was 16, I think, in about 1956-57, which would have been a world record fee for a teenager at the time of £10,000. In fact, when you look at Law's fees, and I found Law the most fascinating one to write about out of the three just because I knew the least about him because he's kind of overshadowed a bit by, by 
Charlton the best. Charlton is sort of, I think Charlton is Mr. Manchester United in so many ways. He kind of represents the ideal of what you want the club to be, how he conducts himself. He's a brilliant you ambassador. actually plugging your icons piece and putting that out today. Yeah, um, so it's George Best is the one that's going out today, which is the second one of the three. The Dennis Law one I finished yesterday, which will go out next week. Um, but George Best is fifth, is in, is joint fifth in the in the top ten United League goal scorers in history. They are, if you were to put together an all-time Manchester United eleven, a starting eleven, all three of them would be in the eleven. Yeah, absolutely no question whatsoever. Um, it's questionable. I, I wonder whether we would have put Dennis Law um, had the Munichair crash not happened. I think best certainly we would have brought in. Obviously, Charlton was already there, but I think when you already had someone like the, the, you already had someone like Tommy Taylor, for instance, who was at the club and, and, and other people, I think, and, and before, just as Dennis Law arrived, you already had, even though he survived the crash, Dennis Filet was there as well, who is also joint fifth in the uh, top league goal scorers for United. Um, I wonder where we would have bought Dennis Law. Um, I think we bought him from Torino. He had a he went there for a year, um, scored ten goals in his first season, which, despite what many people might think, was actually in that time in Italy was a very very respectable total for a centre forward to get. This was the the, the era where Catanaccio really took hold in Italy with the Milan clubs. And um, I think Law, he spoke very fondly of his time in Italy in general. He loved living there. He loved the people, the food, the culture, everything about it. He just wasn't a huge fan of the football that they played at the time and he wanted to leave. And the, the thing about Law is you, 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 those three in the Holy Trinity were very different characters. Uh, Charlton's a very strained, self-contained kind of character. And, I don't know this for sure, but I, I wonder whether that was because of Munich and you wonder going going through something like that at his age, I think he was he twenty years old, twenty one years old when that crash mm. happened. He was very young. There's always been whispers. Whispers because I don't think anyone went on record to kind of say it was true. But uh, I think there there was tension to follow between Busby and Charlton or Busby or Best and, and Charlton um after retiring. I don't think they always seen eye to eye. Um, I don't think the three of them always saw eye to eye and Law and, and Busby had their falling out as well I mentioned um, in the piece that we'll go out next week that Dennis Law now Dennis Law was captain of the club um, I think for, for several years actually um, and in 66 he was transfer listed because he wanted a pay rise in his next contract in fact no 65 and this was after he won the Ballon d'Or all three of these guys won the Ballon d'Or by the way uh, Law in 64 when he won the goal, he scored 46 goals. Charlton won it in 66 when, no dispute in my mind, Charlton was the best player in the world in 1966. He was won phenomenal. The that year as well. Won the World Cup. He was England's best player. I think United won the league title that year as well, if I remember rightly. It was one of their two league titles they won that year. Yeah. Um, he was. No, I, no I, 66, I, they didn't win the title. They, they, I think 65 and then 67, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. 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 Um, he was England's best player, arguably, in that World Cup as well. He was arguably England's best player. Um, and um, George Best won it in 68 when he was he was 22. It's which incredible I think... to think three of these players like, dominated that award throughout the, throughout the 60s. And, you, know, you, could, you could say they dominated because you had Charlton came second place in 67 and 68. Yeah. So that yeah. was after he won it. 
Um, but Best came third in the early 70s, if I remember correctly. And he was playing in a really mediocre United team then as well. Yeah, exactly. And at, at the time too, his own... His own fortunes were beginning to change then as well. You know, his, I suppose the the love for George Best. If you, if you read any of the books or you watch any um, any documentaries, you will see that from the beginning George Best was the pet was was Busby's pet. But as we as we went into the seventies, he caused a bit of upheaval and he he became a bit of a, a bit of a rogue. I think it's with, with certain managers, so it didn't it didn't end on a great note for him. So. In, in, in the 70s, he was still there, thereabouts, though. He was still, you know... Yeah, he was, he was top scoring six of his last seven seasons at United. And considering he wasn't a centre-forward, that's quite incredible, really. When you look at best, uh, 179 goals in 470 games, for an attacking midfielder, that's that's a really impressive statistic. I do think it's important to know, too, that I, that I know I touched on that, that he, there might have been a bit of love lost towards the end of, of, of best time at United, but the... As far as the supporters were concerned, that was never that was never the yeah. case. You know, I mean, best... I mean, he he still carried he carried the team. There's no yeah. question. And I think I, I wrote about this in the piece that's going out today. I think one of the reasons uh, why best sort of then there was an almost an antagonistic relationship between best and the club was for best the European Cup in 1968, and he said this in interviews. That's supposed to be the beginning for him. You know, he wanted to go on and win it again and again. And the reason these three were so successful and the reason these three, in some ways, it's amazing that they managed to coexist as long as they did. Very different characters, very big characters um, in, in, the, in the dressing room in their own way. You know, uh, one of the things I love, I mean, Law sort of is a personal favourite for me. He's so sharp. He's such a sharp guy. You know, when he was a kid... You know, he came from a really, really poor family in Aberdeen. Like, he didn't have his first pair of shoes until he was 12. That's that's how poor his family was, incredibly poor. Um, he was slated to go to a grammar school because he was such a bright young man. But he didn't want to go because the only sport that they, you, they would like to play there was rugby. He wasn't interested in that. So he chose to go to a state com- a comprehensive because he wanted to play football. That was what he wanted to do. And... You know, when you watch Law, he's such a sharp guy. He's Who got says twelve-year-olds little... can't make wise decisions, or kids can't make wise decisions? I know, but that <laughs> it says you, it tells you something about. He was a guy because you know one of the things about him being so poor, and this is something really that's only kind of come back into people's minds probably in the last few years since you've had the recessions and stuff, and when there's been horrendous government cuts all over the world, is that he was malnourished. Um, Bill Shankly was Dennis Law's first and probably main mentor when he was when he was a younger player, which is why he went to take him to Liverpool. And some putting tribalism aside, I have a lot of love and a lot of time for Bill Shankly. Great manager, really interesting guy. Did a lot of really good work in the local community actually when he was at Liverpool as well. You know, he used to do stuff like um, when someone struggled to get council housing, he'd go and bang on the doors of the local council heads of the council to make sure something was sorted. And he really looked after Dennis Law in those early days. He devised special training and dietary regimes for him to make sure that his development wasn't hindered. And I think in many ways, the reason Dennis Law became the player he became was because of Shankly. Such a mentor for him early on. And Not I think too bad sort of, having Shankly and Busby as mentors, oh, is it? Incredible. Two of the greatest managers there's ever been. And I think two, two of the best sort of men that I think have ever been in, in the game, I, I, for me personally as well. Incredible, incredible sort of characters but 
I think you see there with Law, he was a guy that would always fight his own corner because he was so small and scrawny, and that carried through onto the pitch as well. I remember him saying, you know, he learned when he was younger because he was smaller than the other lads in his age group. It's like if you got hit, don't care how small you are, you hit back harder. George Best subscribes to that theory as well. George Best is another very small, slight individual. I get hit, I'll hit you back harder. You used to see the tackles. As you can see, that's, to... that's just something in the Irish water. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, it's incredible, really. Um, a great story about Best actually when he was at he was at Hibs very very briefly. And uh, now George Best's from a Protestant family in Belfast. His dad was a member of the local Orange Order Lodge, so quite a very prominent sort of um, ardent Protestant Irish Unionist family. And when he was at Hibs, they played uh, Celtic. And um, <laughs> there was an incident that happened in a game where I think basically one of the Celtic players said, oh, we're going to try and put one on him early doors. And he just basically, he nutmegged this guy and then stopped and waited. And the guy came out and he just nutmegged him again. And then all the Celtic fans just stopped and then just applauded because they thought this was just so amazing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that yeah. was, so that was that was kind of the kind of guy that Best was um, in terms of the kind of adulation he used to get from Fans didn't matter where you came from, just loved it's George Best. And yeah, I remember Bobby Charlton saying this when he did, he always said, Charlton, he said, God, it must have been. He was talking about that period, I think 1963 to 68, well, 64 to 68, when the four of them played together. He said, Must have been great watching United back then. Three of the very best players in the world. I likened it when I wrote about Law to like a, a super group. So Led Zeppelin was a super group. He wasn't just like a band that got together when they were kids. And they, no, they were guys from like other like amazing bands, amazing musicians who just got together for this period of time. And Led Zeppelin were together for, I think, less than 10 years. Once John Bonham died, they, they basically went their separate ways. And it was kind of, this was what this was like. It was three very distinct individuals, incredible individuals, who would have walked into any team in the world. Anyone would have had them. Like, I guarantee you, look, if, if if Real Madrid or Barcelona got a sniff of being able to buy Charlton Law or Best, they would have, they would have snapped your hand off. They would, we'll take them immediately. Uh, and it, it just, you know, to, to free them together, and, and in that period, to win two league titles in the European Cup, I was going back to this. I think some of the most competitive period in, in certainly in English football has ever been. Obviously, Shankly's first great Liverpool team, Burnley, Manchester City had a great team under Joe Mercer in the 1960s. I think they won a league title and got to the semi-final of the European Cup. Um, Leeds United under Don Revy emerged in that area, uh, sort of spearheaded by uh, Johnny Giles, who came up through Manchester United before he left. Johnny Giles is an amazing player. He couldn't get in the team. That's how good United were. He couldn't get in that team. He had to leave and go somewhere else. Yeah, he went off to to lead a team of dirty bastards. They were dirty bastards, but to be fair, I think everyone were dirty bastards back then. <laughs> but it tells you something that even back then Leeds were considered dirty bastards. That really yeah. tells you quite a lot. Um, I, I would recommend, by the way, there was a great thing on the BBC that came out recently about the 1970 FA Cup final between Leeds and Chelsea. Some of the dirtiest teams that have ever existed on the face of the earth when you look at the characters involved. And um, the Chelsea thing reminds me of one of the best goals that sticks in my mind. I think it was about 68 or 69. Best, 
you see this so often, you know, some like bog of a pitch, like there's more mud than grass. He basically just sort of dances through and you see, first of all, Ron Harris comes in and it's horrendous. It's an assault that he comes in. Not only does Best not, not only um, does, it's not just the case of Best gets up, Best stays on his feet, carries on, another challenge comes in from another Chelsea player over the other side, (laughs) he still stays on his feet then he gives the goalkeeper the eyes, rounds the goalkeeper and puts it in. I'm just like, that. I watched yeah. that for, God, if you've seen, I mean, those challenges, I know people say, oh, football was different back then. Those challenges, the first one that came in from Chopper Harris was a red card all day long. I'm surprised he didn't break George Best's leg. I mean, it was a scissor tackle. He wasn't even going for the ball. There was another famous case, I think it was Queen's Park Rangers who we were playing. And, um, I wonder, I think back then Tommy Dockett might have actually been the QPR manager. Um, and one of the QPR players came in and just tried to take Best out, yeah. try and take him out of the game. And um, almost took Best, he took Best boot off. And Best just, Best still kept the ball. And then Best just picked up the boot and had the boot in one hand and then had his bare foot with his sock on just sort of rolling the ball on the feet. The guy comes in again. He just basically does this like kind of like um, roll and sort of like flick away. <laughs> Defender just completely misses the ball and best. He's still holding the boot above his head and then off he goes. He just sends off a pass to a teammate. That is incredible. And it's difficult, obviously, to compare footballs from different eras. But I think the three of them would have been great in any era. Uh, I mean, Bobby Charlton, for me... If you look at mid, what midfielders would be for the next 30, 40 years, he was almost the template. He was box to box. He would score goals. He would create goals. Incredibly skillful, tremendous athlete, great engine. He never, ever stopped. You I know, think, and, and, to, think... and to have the goal scoring record that he had, I mean, there's only really what springs to mind, I think maybe Frank Lampard, that maybe rivals that in terms of a goal scoring record from a midfielder. And probably I would argue that. Since Charlton retired, I may be... I'll get pillory for some United fans, but I'm not saying skulls, but I think maybe Lampard is, is the closest in terms of a midfielder to, to, to Bobby Charlton since, since Bobby Charlton retired. Possibly Robson as well. But Robson, great as he was, maybe lacked to some of the brains that I'm going to get Charlton you to dive had. into that one week. Yeah, I just maybe... I, I love Brian Robson. Maybe lacked some of the intelligence that... that Maybe Charlton and someone like Lampard had because he would Robson would often get injured from committing himself into stupid challenges. Something you touched on, which I'm going to finish up on. I want people who are listening to this to to reach out to us on Twitter at the Stratycast. Um, what we're going to do next week, we're going to come back and reveal each of our all-time Manchester United 11s. Um, Mike has already said that he doesn't think he can you can do that without having. The United Trinity involved, Best Law and Charlton, which I want you to go and think about it. I don't want you to just go and name 11 players that you think was the, were the best in specific positions. I want you to do it with, with an idea of combinations too. This trio were, um, were renowned for being a trio, and that's why Mike is arguing you can't have a United team without them in it um, as that. So yeah, if you tweet us your all-time United 11, you don't have to have seen them during your lifespan. They can be older because these three players are. Um, so send that to the tweet. We'll reveal ours next week. And we'll just see the kind of 
how many people are mentioning Best, Law and Charlton because I think you raise, you raise a very good point there. As a trio, there's very few that I can think of to compare. People will say Ronaldo, Rooney and Tevez, of course. But what I'm going to try and do is fit in some other United players into a lineup with these three. Yeah, yeah. I, it has to be a proper team that you can actually field and play a match with. Yeah. I think that is really important. You know, and if you want to use a fourth or two or fourth review, by all means. Um, but uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned Ronaldo, Rudy, and Tevez. Yeah, I think that's the closest we've seen mm. to that kind of get together because the, the class of 92 is not really the same. That was more like the Brusby Bays, where it's sort of organically growing for a group of young players. This was three individual superstars who pulled together and created an incredible partnership. The Led Zeppelin. Oh, man. <laughs> unbelievable. Unbelievable. Even then. I don't think Rooney, Ronaldo and Tevez match up to that. I mean, I, I think of 08-09 when you had Berbatov thrown into the mix as well. Yeah. Um, do you remember that Spurs game, the 5-2, where we just had all four of them on in the second half? Ferguson went, I'll just have them all on there and they'll just sort all this out. But it's, it's incredible, really. Cause, but it was the way that they all complemented each other. I think one last thing I want to touch on is that if you watch a lot of Danny Slaw's goals, and he says this himself, a lot of them came from he would see Charlton or Best advancing towards the area and think, okay, wait up. And he would start making his move. And one of them, usually Charlton, would hammer in one of these pile driver shots. Bear in mind how heavy the ball was back then. You watch some of Bobby Charlton's goals and you think, Jesus wept. Like how hard he used to hit the ball. And with such a perfect flight of the ball as well, the way he could hit it. Not just hard, but so accurately is mm. quite incredible. And I think Wayne Mooney is a, a, is quite an accurate comparison to someone who could do that. I think he's the best all-round footballer that England have produced since Bobby Charlton. And that United, in terms of an English player that United have had since Charlton. Um, and then what had happened was, because the, the keeper couldn't hold the, re, couldn't hold the shot because it was so bloody hard. I mean, he's almost broke his hands just stopping this thing. Law would usually pounce in on the rebound and and just knock it in. Um, he was such a so instinctive and so clever. He could read the game so well. And yeah, like I said, 237 goals in just over 400 games. 18 hat tricks he got in his just at, just at United. He got 18 hat tricks. That's not including his first spell at Manchester City because he was there when he left Huddersfield and he did really really well. His first spell at Man City, and then you know, um, you know, when he was at Huddersfield, it's just an incredible record, absolutely incredible. Three of the best. I, I mentioned in the law piece, not only three of the best players United have had. I'd say, arguably, if you were to compile a top 100 of all-time greatest players worldwide, they would all be in the list. All three of them would be in the list. There's no question in that in my mind. Their record stands up to anything. I think the only thing that maybe let Law and Best down was the fact that there there would be the lack of World Cups because, I mean, when both you put of them it, when you put you put it towards uh, some of the the Brazilian players of that time and they have say several World Cups, it's hard to rack up that argument. But I I, I don't think that should hold them back either because no you have no to I mean Scotland and Northern Ireland really squandered yeah, what they had. Yeah. If, it's if like, you look it's like at Ryan Giggs and Wales. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, I look at the, the Scotland squad that Dennis Law was a part of in 1974. That was just an absolutely ridiculous squad, the players he had. You, you know, you have to remember back then, 
these these three guys were around at a time where the UK and Ireland were producing an inordinate amount talent, of world class yeah. football world class footballers and really did underachieve. I think I think um, really only England really sort of reached up to the potential. I think. Um, remotely reached up to the potential in that, that period. And even then, I think maybe England should have done maybe a bit more than win a World Cup. But we'd when have you to had do an Italian Germany, podcast. Yeah, I just, you know, um, and it, but incredible, really. And, and it tells you something that they they, st- they stood out and they stood out in such a competitive era mm. in English football. To have eight different champions in a decade, I didn't even mention the Everton team that was around in the 60s that won a league title in an FA Cup. And you had Alan Ball in that team. Incredible. Uh, I think Howard Kendall, who was a great player in his own right, was in that team. Uh, never seen anything like it. I'll just also add the point that most of the best teams that were around at that time were from the north of England. That's all I'm saying. Most of them from the north of England. Said it. Said it. Produced... Said in your London in your London flat. Yeah, exactly. We, <laughs> we produced better teams, but a, a incredible period of English football. I always think that uh, Northern Ireland had another great player back then, which is Danny Blanchflower. His um, brother survived the Minicare crash. Danny Blanchard played for Tottenham. I think he was the captain, actually, of the team that won the double. Mm. And um, his brother, Jackie, played for United. Now, he was in the Minicare crash, but his injuries were such that he could never play again, which is a real shame because he was a really, really gifted player. And Again, you know, people talk about Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland, back in the 60s, had, a, had some really good players. Again, just never achieved their potential... Um, that's the only thing that counts against them but I have to say I still think they would make the top 100 all time greatest world footballers because just astonishing on ability alone best probably makes the top 10 um, on longevity and his stats Bobby Charlton might squeak in there as well but I mean even many of the contemporaries say that best uh, ranked up alongside Pele in, in terms of how good he was in terms of his natural ability as a footballer and up alongside, and, and I mean, um, even like Eusebio said, best was as good as he was. And Eusebio, what's that, I think what's like, that quote? It's on a flag. It's um, Pele, yeah. Diego Maradona, George that's, Best. It's Maradona good, Pele great, George Best. best yeah. I think that's the quote on the flag. And there is some element of truth to that. And I think, like I said, Best was let down a little bit by Manchester United. Yeah. I mentioned in a piece on Best that it was almost as if the European Cup in 68, that was the last sort of energy the, the club had for a while and kind of spent that. I think Busby's energies at that point, that was the last that he had. I don't think he, could, he couldn't do it again. And um, I think that really... I think United didn't match Best's ambition. I think had George Best been around today, you know, and that had happened. Another big European club would have come in and just bought him. I think mm. happened. He would have gone to Real Madrid or Barcelona. Yeah. And, I, and I'm not sure. I think Best's problems started because he loved football. He loved it so much. It was the one thing he wanted to do. And I think when the club really didn't match his ambition, I think his love for the game died. And I think that was where his problems started. In fact, it's very clear that was where his problems started because up until... Even though there's that great story that Best um, told himself that, that the night before the European Cup final in '68, he spent the night with, um, I think it was a particular woman, a particular young lady called Sue, as he mentioned. It probably, you know, he was 22 years old, he'd do what he wants. You know, he was single. 
but he, he didn't he have a good finish. He was about to play a European Cup final. I think he, I think he's entitled. Yes, he was. Yes, and uh, he was. He was the man. He was man of the match. I would have said in that in that game as well. He was, I've watched that game. He was brilliant. Um, but he didn't have the drink problems back then. He didn't have that, and I think they started when his love for the game started to die. And I think had he been around today, he would have just gone. Or even maybe fifteen years later, like it maybe been around in the eighties, I could have seen, you know, Juventus or Barcelona or Real or Bayern would have come in and say, "Hey, George, come play here. We'll pay you a load of money." The big difference then, though, I think you kind of briefly touch on it. Footballers had to look after themselves. They didn't have teams of experts. Um, to help them with different issues and stuff, no. and they they just had to fend for themselves. So when, when, that's when, that's why that's why I said those three today, man. Can you imagine how good they would have been? Yeah. I mean, Charlton was a great pro, hence why he had such tremendous longevity in his career. Um, as was Dennis Law, you know. Um, but man, if they'd been around today, I just you wouldn't even think with teams of nutritionists and you know uh, agents and, and people making sure that hey don't be doing that don't be I mean it's questionable whether <laughs> it's questionable whether you know someone like Best for instance you would have had people around him now which would have said hey, just don't even bother having a drink you know listen you know he probably would have been he would Best in his ability ranks up with Messi and Ronaldo no question yeah no question yeah, no, definitely. We'll end it on that note. But um, do get in touch with the Straightcast on Twitter. We want your all-time Manchester United 11 next week. Myself and Michael come back. We'll go through our 11 and the reasons for and against. But I, 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 I want to stress, don't just list players that were the best in their specific position to play for the club because what we want is kind of a feel of players that combined well together, a team that would work. And we want to see from your selection how we think it will work. I mean, look, we'll discuss that on the show next week. It might be a bit of fun, something a bit different, but keep it into the, the aspect of Manchester United history, which we enjoy talking about. Um, Mike, how can people find you on social media? And, of course, thanks for joining me again today. Uh, pleasure's all mine. Um, obviously, I'm the main person that runs the Strictly Cast account. Um, so if you see me taking the mick of people having stupid opinions on football, or you see that account doing that, that's probably me. Um and then I also have my own account, which is um, Northern Loudmouth, which is basically links to my own film blog um, that I, I've done on films. I feel like I should do some sort of football films um, while this lockdown's going on, and I might, I might well do that. I might, you I had, might, you I had might... a list of recommendations for Gary Neville a lot longer. Yes, but I may do some specific football films. There's not many good ones, I have to say. Um, but may, maybe I'll do a review of the FIFA film United Passions for the Stretti. For strategy website. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, look, we'll see you again next week. Um, just a reminder, you can catch this podcast, the video file of that, on our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Shreddy News. Keep in track with Manchester United News throughout the week at ShreddyNews.com, which you can follow us there on Twitter at Shreddy News. And my own personal Twitter is O'Donnell Dale. Um, I'll see you again next week along with Mike. And we'll have a podcast, hopefully, two out again next week, one on Monday, and this show with Mike will be out on Thursday. Um, check out his Icons of Old Trafford piece which will be up on the blog today on George Best um, they, they make great reads there's ones on Cantona, Bobby Charlton already um, really really good stuff so we'll see you again soon and thanks for listening Sports Social Podcast Network